What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I'm very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. It's been, what, two to three weeks since we did our, yeah, our episode on the Phantom Menace. And we are continuing with our Star Wars prequel rewatch and Midnight Myth conversation. Very excited. This is also coming after me finishing my Star Wars tattoo. So my Star Wars tattoo got finished yesterday, and today we're recording a Star Wars Midnight Myth. It just feels perfect, doesn't it? It absolutely does. It feels like kismet. If you are in the United States, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and pondered your colonial history. If you're not in the United States, I hope you pondered your colonial history of your culture anyway. Um, And I hope you are having a lovely and restful lead up to the winter holidays and into this time of introspection. We love you all so much, and we love this time of year, so it also feels like a great time to be talking about Star Wars. It's always a great time to be talking about Star Wars, if you want my opinion, because I'm constantly thinking about Star Wars. The only subject I think I think about more than Star Wars probably be Ancient Rome, the Philadelphia Phillies, the Philadelphia Eagles, then Star Wars. It goes in that order. Yeah, and never spares a thought for his loving wife or child. Never, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, all I my, think about is astrology. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> nor my job, nor uh, nor any of my employees that report to me. I don't think about any of that. It's all, it is all Rome, Philly sports, Star Wars. <laughs> As it should be. Go yeah. birds, go birds. Go birds, yeah, absolutely. Can't wait for the next Eagles game. So I'm really, really, really excited to talk about the Clone Wars. I was nervous going into this, I'm not going to lie. I will actually... I'll let you do your thing, then I'll explain that. So, Laurel, do your thing. Oh, yeah, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. We're over on social media on uh, Twitter or X at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, so drop us a line if you want to say hi. You can also find us on the web at midnightmyth.com, and that's where you'll find some blogs and extra content and also information about our to our brother and sister show, as I like to call them, our sister show, Sleep and Sorcery, which is my sleep story podcast inspired by folklore and fantasy. If you are still looking for holiday gifts, I have great news, which is that the hardcover edition of my book, Sleep and Sorcery, Enchanting Bedtime Stories, Rituals, and Spells, will be shipping this month. Uh, So you can buy that directly from the publisher, Crossed Crow Books, and if you order in time, hopefully should be there uh, to fill your Christmas stocking or sit under your tree. 
And then the worldwide paperback release is set for August 2024. So definitely check it out. Pre-orders really, really help me as a new author. So consider pre-ordering that from the publisher or wherever you get your books. And then our brother show is The Wheel of Ka, our amazing Stephen King book club podcast with Derek and Steve now in its own feed. So you can catch up on all the reading they've been doing with The Dark Tower and then the adjacent Stephen King books as they spin out from the nexus of the tower at uh, the center of the universe. Yeah. Um, Steve and I owe a midnight, I'm sorry, a wheel of Ka, and it just has not been easy to figure out when we're going to do that and let you guys know, wheel of Ka fans listening to the midnight myth, Steve just bought a house. So just congratulations to Steve and his family. Some amazing news. He'd been looking for a house for a long time, but that also means a lot less free time for him. So we're going to do it as soon as we can figure out how to do it. Yep. So stick with us. Thank you for your patience. Greatly appreciate it. All right. Let's go to the briefest of brief recaps. Take it away, Derek. Star Wars Episode Two: The Clone Wars starts with an assassination attempt on now once Queen, now Senator Amidala, as she's going back to the Galactic Senate to fight the creation of an army because several star systems are forming their own form of government and they are called the Separatist under the leadership of a mysterious ex-Jedi named Count Dooku. Obi-Wan and Anakin, Anakin now a nearly grown man, Padawan of Obi-Wan, get assigned as protection for Queen Amidala to make sure that they stop these assassination plots. Then follows a mystery. Who is trying to kill uh, the Senator Amidala? Obi-Wan ends up tracking it down to a bounty hunter named Jango Fett and finds out that Jango Fett's DNA was used to create a massive clone army, presumably at the order of the ex-Jedi Master uh, Sifo-Dyas, who had died in combat years before this army had been ordered. While he's following this um, Jango Fett, he ends up going to the planet Gnosis, and there he discovers that the Separatists, under the leadership of Count Dooku, are forming a gigantic droid army and are planning to A, assassinate Amidala, and B, start a war. He ends up being captured by Dooku and ends up be suspecting that he is a Dark Lord of the Sith. Meanwhile, in order to keep the queen, I'm sorry, the senator, once queen, now senator, safe, Anakin ends up being her protector and they sneak her back to the planet of Naboo and there follows their budding romance. Anakin confesses his love to her. They have a kiss and she does, refutes his advances saying, I'm a senator, you're a Jedi. It could never work. We can't have a secret romance. Meanwhile, they get the distress signal from Obi-Wan Kenobi. And oh, previous to that, back up one slide here. Anakin has a dream that his mother is dying. He and... Uh, Padme go to Tatooine to discover that she was kidnapped by sand people, his mother, and he, in his anger, when he sees her dead, slaughters all the sand people, and not just the men, the women, and the children. Then they find out that Obi-Wan has a distress signal. They go back to Gnosis to try to rescue him. Padme confesses his love. They end up trying to be assassinated by Monster, which is they're in a gladiatorial-style pit, and these gigantic monsters come out to eat them. But of course, they all escape. The Jedi show up. They end up fighting the droids, but the droid army is just too many of them. The numbers are too big, and then suddenly the clone army shows up. Anakin ends up. Anakin and Obi-Wan end up confronting Dooku. Anakin gets his arm chopped off. Yoda ends up stopping Dooku, but he ends up escaping, finding out that he is now the new apprentice to Darth Sidious. A war has broken out. And 
Anakin and Amidala marry in secret as he gets a new robotic arm. Ooh, a lot of plot happens in that. That was all plot. That was just plot, plot. Man, these same mo- thing we said about Phantom Menace. It's just plot, plot, plot. So much stuff happens in these movies, and yet there's no character development. It's just a bonanza of red flags, too. It's like every five minutes something happens where you're like, "Hey, Padme, you might want to get out of this before it's too late." But uh, you know, she's just feeling that pervy little glare that that Anakin has, I guess it stops making her uncomfortable and starts, you know, making her feel good. Nothing know. says, I want to marry you in secret, like the slaughter of innocent women and children. Yeah. Right? Nothing says, woo, let's, di- let's get it on. Uh, so let us ask now, we did this with episode one, The Phantom Menace. Give me sort of your relationship to this movie as well as does it hold up? Okay, so this one, you might not believe this. I skipped this one in the theater. I saw The Phantom Menace in the theater when I was about 10, uh, and then I skipped this one, and then I saw Revenge of the Sith in the theater, and I ended up not seeing Attack of the Clones until much, much later. I think I was in college, and I did a full uh, chronological rewatch of all of the Star Wars movies that were out at that point. So just one, two, three, four, five, and six. And that was the first time I had seen it, uh, which was crazy. And my assessment of whether or not this holds up uh, no, no, it does not. This movie is like sand. It is coarse, it is rough, it is irritating. It is ostensibly a love story. Really the the thing that's moving this whole thing forward with the machinations of the Senate and the army and the clones in the background is the love story between Anakin and Padme, which we are supposed to believe is this grand epic romance, and yet it has absolutely no heart. This movie has no heart. It is bloodless. I do not like it at all. However, I will throw a little bit of love at things that I do appreciate about it. I think production design in this movie is quite exquisite. While I today have a negative reaction to a lot of the visual effects and the fact that the movie is 99% digitally constructed rather than shot on location or in um, in real physical places with people interacting with puppets the way the, the original trilogy did. I think there is some beautiful design happening, especially with the architecture and the sort of geological features of the new, the new planets that we go to, specifically Camino and Geonosis. Coruscant, too, you get a better feel for the inner workings of Coruscant, which feels very influenced by Blade Runner, feels very L.A., feels very metropolitan and polished as opposed to the original trilogy but also kind of seedy and like there is this underbelly to it that we hadn't seen before i think would you like to buy some death sticks (laughs) i I don't you don't want to sell me death death sticks (laughs) yeah so so it's it's nice it's got lots of really interesting referential stuff that is simmering under the surface I think the design of Camino is really interesting as this sterile planet where the clones are created, but I think it's also, while it feels often like a hospital, it also has these subconsciously sexual sort of images that are part of it. So the creatures, the the aliens that populate Camino certainly re- re- resemble sperm cells. And then you go to Geonosis, which is like the exact opposite of Camino. It's this very rough landscape. It's rocky. It's very organic. The architecture seems built into the landscape in this very Antony Gaudi-esque, almost Art Nouveau uh, sort of outgrowth. It all feels 
like Gaudi meets Geiger or Giger, um, if you're thinking about Alien, and also intensely sexual in nature in terms of how the architecture and the design functions as part of the landscape. So you have Dooku standing in this pulpit over the gladiatorial combat arena, and he's basically surrounded by these carved rock vulvas. So there's a lot of that sort of imagery seeping into the storytelling that might be there to serve for heightening the passion between Anakin and Padme. So I do like that from a design perspective as adding to the kind of uh, under the surface storytelling in a way. So that's that's one thing that I like about this movie. Pull Everything no else I don't like. Yeah, pull no punches <laughs> there. We're gonna call you pull no punches Padme. No. Yep. Um, no, I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. You know, for me, this is the first and only time that I went to a Star Wars movie and I left the theater visibly disappointed. I walked away from Phantom Menace being like, that was amazing. I can't believe it. And as I explained in the last one, then you thought about it like, hold on, was that a good movie? This one, I walked away being like, yeah, that's bad. You know, I did not enjoy it in the theater. I went back and rewatched it just to make sure what I was feeling was adequate. Like, is this the real pitch? Should I not like this movie? And I was starting to become one of those, these prequels are, are bad. There's real issues here. And rewatching it now, I don't think it was as bad as I thought then. I think there is a really interesting story happening in the Clone Wars. Is it executed at a good level? No. And the main reason, I think, is the romance between Padme and Anakin. I think George Lucas wrote himself in a bind with Padme and Anakin being such different ages in The Phantom Menace because they're so different in age. Your next movie, it just feels awkward and is written awkward and is acted awkward. Everything about them falling in love does not make sense and does not hold up. Even from the, the scene when the sand, the infinite sand scene where everyone makes fun of hit the dialogue there, which it's not very good dialogue. He also just like, you know, without permission, just starts touching Padme. And it's like, that's just so cringe that he's just like, let me just go ahead and start like, while you're not looking creepily, like move my hand up and down on your shoulder. Non-consensually touch you when I'm in a weird sort of position of not authority, but I'm supposed to be the person protecting I'm your, you. I'm your bodyguard? Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely the bodyguard. And I'm then, definitely not supposed to be making advances Yeah, and then you. let me like sexily force over to you the butt of a pear for dessert, <laughs> like the worst part of a fruit. I don't know. I'm so confused. Yeah, it, and it's just their, their romance is just not believable. And because so much of the movie is dedicated to that romance, it does not hold up very well. I think the decision to have Yoda with a cane is also not a good one. And I know that might sound very nitpicky, but if I'm supposed to believe that Yoda is the best lightsaber duelist in the galaxy, it, it always took me out of it that he, he can barely stand up and he's hubbled and old, but then once he gets the lightsaber, he's suddenly superpowered. And I get it, he's a Jedi, he has magic powers, he could be using the force in those scenarios, but it's just like, visually, I'm like, you know, this is, this is way before Empire Strikes Back when we first meet him. He could have aged considerably after, I don't know, 
watching the entire Jedi Order fall and the society he devoted himself to protecting be completely crumbled and all of the Jedi dying. So I think having Yoda, if you're going to have General Yoda, let's see Yoda as a general. So I think that is another issue that I've always had with it. R2-D2 and C-3PO don't belong in this movie. They totally don't fit. There's this, during the, the, the climactic battle, and if there is some good to this, you know, that battle, yeah, it's over CGI'd, but it, it is well executed. You do feel a true sense of danger for the Jedi, a true sense of excitement when the clones show up. And you as a Star Wars fan, knowing that the clones are not going to ultimately be the good guys and seeing them with the Jedi, you're like, oh my God, the Jedi are all duped. So you do get a sense of excitement, but it gets con continually undercut by these comedy bits with C-3PO and R2-D2 that just don't belong there. It's just coming from a different movie and it makes that combat battle sequence, which is by far the best part of the movie, in my opinion, um, the, well, the most well-told part of the movie, it completely undercuts it. And lastly, though the dialogue is not great, the mystery of that Obi-Wan is on is, is an interesting story. It is. It's, there's this mystery happening. Who do, you, who do you trust? Jedi archives are going missing. Jedi who are supposedly dead are building armies. And you got the sense of what's really going on here. And I think less of the romance, more of the mystery, get the cheeky comedy out of it, make Yoda a little more of a military presence. And I think, I think, I think a lot of the sins of this movie get fixed. You know, and I think you can't do anything about the fact that there's a 10 year age gap between the people that are supposed to be in love. One is still, has not passed his trials of knighthood, e.g. he's still a boy. He hasn't passed his trials of quote unquote manhood, though they don't describe it in those terms. The Jedi go through rituals to get to the phase where they are no longer a student. So here is a student seducing a senator who was once a queen, and the whole thing feels cringe. And I don't know if there's any saving that. I don't know if there's any saving that dialogue that's there. Like that, Natalie Portman and, and Hayden Christensen, we've seen Hayden Christensen act as Anakin since this with better dialogue, and he can act. Like, he's not a bad actor. It's just like that dialogue, there's not much you could do with that, right? Natalie Portman doesn't look good in it. So there's a lot going on in this movie, but ultimately, it does have an interesting story. I am, ugh, this is going to sound so Star Wars nitpicky too. It always bothered me and still bothers me that the Clone Wars is not clones fighting clones. It's clones fighting droids. And that always just felt like, this doesn't feel like a clone war to me. This is a war that happens to have clones. And I know that sounds like an original trilogy gatekeeper-y statement. It is an original trilogy gatekeeper. Well, actually, the clone war should be two armies of clones. Like, it, it is being that fan. But it, there are parts of George Lucas just saying, bah, to ideas set up in the original trilogy and just doing something completely out of left field that happens, that occurs in the prequels that doesn't land for me and will always feel off. It'll always feel off to me that Obi-Wan Kenobi, when he meets R2-D2, doesn't recognize him when he has spent the entire Clone Wars with R2-D2. Like, how do you not remember R2-D2, who was your best friend who became Darth Vader's droid when you see him with Luke? How do you not be like, oh, yeah, that's that droid? Because... Clearly, 
when the original trilogy was written, Obi-Wan had not seen that droid before, but they had to put it like, so yeah, I'm getting down a bit of a rabbit hole here. I don't want to make it about continuity errors or continuity decisions that I dislike. Cause I do think that's the least interesting conversation to have. Sure. You know, it, it, but I had to get it off my chest. It's my podcast, so I did have to say it. I do recognize it. It does bother me. The Clone Wars should have been clones versus clones, and I just like not clones versus droids. That being stated, in American and British and French history, there is a war called the French and Indian War when it was the French versus the British, not the French versus the Indians. Yeah, true. So sometimes wars get weird names. You know, so that does happen. So the Clone War... Gets a weird name. Anyway, moving quite along from that, another thing that I think is worth mentioning on the good, so I've given my bad. Um, Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen are artists with lightsabers. They really are. It's, it's just magical. so believable. When you see them going around with lightsabers, swinging them, like you, I, I become a kid at Christmas again. I want to take my toy lightsaber and go play with it and I want to go defeat all of the battle droids because they're just so good at it. I love Obi-Wan struggling with that monster in the execution scene, and then he finally gets the lightsaber, and just two seconds later, the monster's dead. It's like once he gets his lightsaber, he's just like... Shoo, shoo, shoo. And the two of them really do have quite good chemistry. You know, for whatever you can say about Hayden Christensen being kind of green in this film, I think he's developed into a stronger actor and, of course, has better material these days. But the two of them actually do play off of each other really nicely. And it would have been nice to see them together more in this movie because the emotional payoff when we get to Revenge of the Sith becomes stronger, right? If we get more of their brotherhood, their partnership. The other good thing I'll say about this movie is the costumes are outrageous they are so so good i had the opportunity to see a lot of these costumes in person up close at the star wars costume exhibition that came through several years ago and it was padme's couture dresses from this movie that were the ones that stuck with me the most other than you know seeing the yoda puppet and the actual darth vader suit which was like you know just you can bury me now i'm good but Padme's dresses are just so beautifully made and well-designed and are, again, evoking this very Art Nouveau, very early 20th century kind of vibe that is so, uh, is so specific. And it's very cool that they did that in one way with Naboo in this very elegant um, exploration of it. But then they harped on or iterated on the Art Nouveau aspect in places like Geonosis. So love that. Absolutely love that. I think that's totally cool. Completely agree. The costumes are outrageously good. And there's a lot of good in this movie, too. It's just the, the things that don't work are much bigger and much more apparent than we'll, I think we will find in Revenge of the Sith and in Phantom Menace. In Phantom Menace, it's just like, okay, Jar Jar's a little annoying, but I get what you're trying to do here. Um, yeah, you know, the, the kid Anakin doesn't is not a very strong actor. He's a little annoying, but the pod racing scene's great. Like, there's like these trade-offs in it. We're like, that doesn't hold up so well. But you know what? That is actually still really cool, and I enjoy it. With Attack of the Clones, it is one, it's one of the few Star Wars movies that I think has the most amount of issues that have aged the worst, whereas some other things have aged better. Like, if you're... If, it, if it's 2023 and you're still mad about metachlorians, you got to get over it, dude. You know, like, get over it. Metachlorians are a thing. It's not that deep. It's one part of this universe, and most of Star Wars is not about metachlorians. There's no story 
about Metachlorians other than the fact that Anakin has more than Master Yoda. And that's the only thing that's relevant just to say objectively he is strong in the Force. But Attack of the Clones is one that I think doesn't come together despite I think there being a fundamental good story there and some interesting reflections and things that I think have some interesting historical parallels that if you wouldn't mind me kind of bridging into our analysis piece here. No, absolutely. Go for it. So one of the things that strikes me about the this era of Star Wars and this era, they call it the, uh, the High Republic era. So this is when there is a functional democratic republic. Star systems vote for their senators. They go to the Galactic Senate at Coruscant. They debate the issues. They pass laws. And it looks like there's just a one um, big house. So it's not like we in America, we have the Congress, so, which is made up of two houses, the House and the Senate. There's just one gigantic Senate house. The Senate, they vote for a Supreme Chancellor, who presumably operates with some veto authority, has some additional uh, responsibilities, and acts as sort of an executive leader. So one of the things I find very interesting about how this operates, there are a few parallels. One kind of parallel is ancient Rome. Ancient Rome had one Senate, that Senate, now, to be of senatorial rank, you were not voted in. It had to do with the amount of wealth that you had. So a censor would come around, count your wealth, and if you made it to senatorial rank, then you could go and participate in the Senate. A little like the House of Lords today in the UK. Uh, I don't know how the House of Lords in the UK works. Well, they have two houses. They have... Um, you know, Commons and Lords. Yeah, in, in Parliament. But the Lords, those are the people who are landed gentry who can represent their the land that they hold, the, no, the old nobility going way, way back. But that gets passed down through bloodline, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Roman Senate, if you got to a certain amount of rank, oh, doesn't matter yeah. who your family is, you could nice. be of senatorial rank. And if you squander your wealth and were of senatorial rank, and you could be bumped down, and the, the down below would be the equestrians and then the plebeians at the very bottom. Oh, you don't want to be a pleb. Now, plebeian is technically, now that we're in this rabbit hole, is technically a family that isn't traced, a clan, rather. So Roman society is based upon um, certain units. The most important unit is your clan. So this would be like your main group of people, all of your cousins and next cousins, you're all related. Then you would have your family, and then you would have the father. And then the father owned, literally owns everyone else in the family. So once they become of age, the woman's expected to marry. She's owned by the man. The man's expected to marry. He then becomes that. So your clan, to be of noble rank or patrician, would have to be one of the founding clans of, of ancient Rome. Most of the founding of ancient Rome is very mythic. So a lot of people were able to say, oh, yeah, I'm part of the founding. Once they got to a certain level, then they could make up some records because... Rome was founded around 1000 AD and they weren't writing things down. Yeah, Romulus is the second cousin on my mother's side once removed. Yeah. Exactly. So a lot there was a lot of that, but to be of the like highest social class, you had to trace your family to those lineages, but if you squandered your wealth, you could be booted from the Senate. Now there was there were elected offices in Rome, so there were elections. One of them would be the tribune of the plebs. So this would be a person that would have the ability to veto any legislation passed by the Senate, as well as they could propose legislation, and the plebeians would elect the tribune, and that tribune had a lot of authority over the Senate. So there were elect there are other elected offices too. 
But so the way this seems to work is it sort of mirrors ancient Rome in that it's this one big gigantic Senate and what happens to Rome, it eventually transitions <clears throat> from a Republican form of government to a military autocracy. What's happening here? The transition from a Republican form of government to a military autocracy. But one way that Rome was very different is Rome was a very militarized society. Rome had a standing regular army. That standing regular army was incredibly large and uh, incredibly powerful. It was the most powerful military force on the planet at that time. And we don't have an army at all here in this form of Republican government. We have the Jedi who clearly are warriors, but as Mace Windu says, they're more like peacekeepers. They're more like police officers rather than being able to go out and fight a war. In fact, it's quite easy for the separatists to build a droid army capable of stopping the Jedi. We see that here. And that made me think of American history. And this is something that I thought was a little interesting because we live in a time where America is the mightiest military force on the planet, one of, if not the, certainly technologically and certainly from a funding standpoint. We have the most well-funded military on the planet. Hasn't always been the case in our history. In fact, through most of our history, that's not been true. When America, when the American Revolution happened, immediately after the, uh, the revolution was won, the process started in demilitarizing the colonies. The founding fathers, having studied the history of Rome and having modeled so much of Roman republicanism in American republicanism, and this is not like the Republican Party, but as they saw how the Roman Republic worked and wanted to mirror the things they liked there, they wanted it to be more representative and democratic than it was in Rome. And so, but they based things off of that, knew that if you have a lot of soldiers all the time, a charismatic leader could come, win over the soldiers, and then the soldiers could be used to subvert the democratic will of the people. In other words, they were worried about a Caesar. A Caesar came around, the army loved him, and Caesar said, sorry, the Republic is ostensibly over, and no one could do anything about it. Why? Because if they had a problem, the army would kill them. And they were worried about that happening. So America had a problem then. You had 13 colonies surrounded by the British, the French, and the Spanish, the three military superpowers at the time, literally surrounded by them, all three, the British not liking them, really, really mad that they broke away, the Spanish being like, hey, we could expand our empire, and the French and the American were allies, but you, could they really rely on the French to maybe not surprise attack them? Because right before the revolution, the colonists were at war with France in the French and Indian War. So if you don't want a military, because you think we don't want charismatic generals to take over and subvert democracy, but we're surrounded by enemies, what do we do? And the solution that they came up with was the Second Amendment to make everybody have the ability to buy arms and everyone had to participate in local militias. So if everybody owned a gun, it was part of a local militia, there was a surprise attack, there would be citizen soldiers ready to defend the country from attack. That never actually worked in any of America's wars. It's called the militia myth. We talked about it in our Braveheart episode. 
if you want to cycle back at more detail. But how does that kind of pair up to what we're seeing with the High Republic? Well, they have no military. They are not relying on civilian soldiers, but they do have a very small, very highly trained, very powerful police force. And now they find themselves vulnerable to attack. So what is the method that they do? They end up having to raise an army and they have to do so very quickly, which is the clones. What would America do in all of its wars since the Revolutionary War? It would institute a draft. So war would break out. At no point did the militia myth pan out and did the American militias save us from surprise attack. And then a war would break out, a draft would be instituted, and then America would militarize, militarize very quickly, build up a very large army, fight the war, hopefully win the war or lose the war, and then demilitarize at the very end and say, we don't need an army anymore. This was how America operated in its military history up until the end of World War II. And the reason demilitarization didn't happen then is America immediately entered into a Cold War. So we couldn't demilitarize because there was a Cold War between America and Russia. And we've had a large military apparatus ever since. It's worth noting that the American military apparatus has been under scrutiny before by American politicians. Most notably would be the President Eisenhower, who was the general that commanded the Allied forces during World War II, warning America in his leaving speech as president, saying, we must beware this military-industrial complex, warning us that this could lead us to a tyrannical place and to an unjust place. Um, so we have had warnings about it. Luckily, we haven't had a Darth Vader yet come and take control of American military. Yeah, knock on wood. But what we are seeing here is a, a culture without a military needing to find a way to militarize very quickly, and that being the slippery slope that goes down that will lead the galaxy from a democratic republic into a military autocracy. And I thought that matched up pretty interestingly to how America has viewed its military. Another major thing happened very early in America's history that reinforced the idea that you can't have a large regular army because a charismatic leader could usurp a republic, and they just had to look over the Atlantic and see the rise of Napoleon in France. And Napoleon, charismatic general, new republic, was able to win the hearts and minds of the army, then win the hearts and minds of the people, and crowned himself emperor, and then went on military escapades that ultimately led to the, the, the downfall of the French Empire, you know, which he built it up and had this huge massive army and won all these victories, and then it flamed out. And, um, you know, France hasn't been the number one military power on the planet since. It's all really fascinating, right? Because there is this exploitation of the weaknesses of the new French Republic in this Napoleon example. This is a young democracy that has emerged after, you know, how many centuries of monarchy and then what is what becomes tyranny, of course. The French people kill their king, they lop the head off the king and are like, we will never ever have a king again and then find themselves in a number of years under the rule of an emperor who is able to exploit and find those weaknesses. You know, we're talking about this, of course, after we've just seen Ridley Scott's epic uh, biopic of Napoleon. And it, so it feels very present for us right now. And I think one of 
the you know fascinating illustrations of that charismatic leader having influence over the military is the great story of Napoleon returning from exile in Elba and the French army being there to meet him, to stop him. And what does he say? He says, is this how you would treat your emperor? I forget what the exact line is, but something in history, he says, this is how you greet your emperor or something like that. And he opens his coat being like, if you want to shoot me, shoot me. And the army just like looks at him. They lower their muskets and they're like, that's it. We're switching sides. We're with Napoleon now. And the army just switches. That's set to stop his march in advance, switches sides. He deposes the French king and becomes emperor again. Yeah, because this cult of personality is so deeply embedded. And then military culture serves to exacerbate the, the, the negatives of that. You know, you talked about Rome, too, and the kind of great parallels with what happens in the Senate when Jar Jar Binks, everybody's favorite, comes in and proposes the motion to grant the Supreme Chancellor emergency powers, which, of course, Palpatine says, oh, this is such a great burden. I love democracy. I love this republic. As soon as this crisis has abated, I will lay down the powers that you have given me. And it's a heavy, heavy burden that I, I take this on with. I'm so reluctant to take it on. The, the great example from Roman history, there's Caesar, of course, but then there's Augustus, who is the first emperor of Rome. He takes emergency powers from the Senate during a military crisis and then just never lays them down. And everybody kind of gets on board because there is this deification of Augustus and he uses a propaganda wing and calls himself first among equals and so on and so forth to project the idea of reluctance, even though he's been slaughtering his political enemies this entire time. So I could go on and on about Augustus. I, I could literally walk you through all the beats, I, but... Yeah, I could I could rabbit hole and talk to you about Augustus for a long time, but Absolutely. and Caesar because that that is like of Roman history, the civil wars to the rise of Augustus. That's my sweet spot. That's the moment, right? Yeah. And then you know, of course, there's the more modern example of all of this in Adolf Hitler rising to power in Germany and his control of the military and him being this charismatic leader who is able to exploit the weaknesses and the kind of military fears and and cultural fears of the German people in order to, uh, to really wreak havoc on that country and the entire world. So we're seeing so many of these historical threads being woven into what's happening in the Republic and specifically in what happens with Palpatine. These are huge, big, fundamental questions. How are you going to create a society that is based upon democratic principles of universal rights, rights of all humans on our world and rights of all life forms in the galaxy far, far away, and also have a military whose main job is to kill the enemies of the society. Those are two diametrically morally opposed forces, but you, you can't be naive enough to think that you can maintain control of your civilization maintain its place in the world and be completely demilitarized. There's not a society on the planet that doesn't have some form of a military. So if you don't have a military, you are leaving yourself vulnerable to those that do have a military, you know, and in every instance of at least human history, when one military power discovers, finds, or interacts with another society that does not have the same military technology and is not capable of fully defending itself in human history, 
this militarily superior society subject uses that military to subjugate that other society. That has happened throughout all of human civilization. If you can do it, you do do it. So there is, that, there is this element of what they would say in international relations realism. We have to be realistic and realize that if people have authority and might and power, that they're going to use that over you and that the only way to stop them is to meet them with a similar show of force. So that's a real problem that the galaxy far, far away is facing and every human civilization is facing. But then this thing happens in the Enlightenment that says, hey, we've got this idea called universal human rights. Society's job isn't just to defend its borders. Society's job is to enfranchise its individuals so that they may prosper and grow and that we can build a better world on Earth today. And that is directly in opposition to the militarized autocratic societies. And how do you counterbalance those? How, how much military should you have? What is the right amount of military? Should you even have one? I'd love to say we would live in a world where militaries were unnecessary. That, is, that, that would, would be, be the goal. Great. Yeah. There'd be no war, right? A world without war, with no militaries, that would be phenomenal. A world where maybe you just have a bunch of religious monks with laser swords, you know, keeping the peace when it needs to be, but you don't need an actual military. But as the galaxy far, far away has showed us, it's really easily to manipulate. And when that happens and you find yourself defenseless, you will, people will start the trade of liberty for security. I'm willing to give up these freedoms so that we get the perception of safety. And that is what Shiv Palpatine is doing, is having people start to trade their liberty for their sense of security. And that is the playbook of every autocrat that has tried to transition a republic to a military dictatorship. And these forces exist in America today too, where there are those that would say, you're better off giving up your freedom so I can keep you safe, which means I get more power over you and we do have to recognize that that's a real existential question. One that I think in contemporary American politics, we tend to not ask. We're just like, our military's great. Let's not even ask the question, how much should we have? Could it be corrupted? If so, by who? We tend to not ask these questions because since World War II, our military has not been a force to take away the freedom for people that live in America. It hasn't had that effect but that doesn't mean that that threat's not there. And I think the main lesson with the attack of clones, people like Padme and Senator Organa that are trying to fight the war so that they could stop fighting. So they re recognize if we have an army, that means most likely we're gonna go to war. You know, and so them trying to fight that, that is the good fight right there. Yeah, absolutely. If you'll permit me, it's not necessarily a segue, I think it's sort of a drill down, but you mentioned uh, a moment ago, you know, ideal world, we wouldn't have a need for militaries and maybe we just have, you know, a, a, an order of monks with laser swords. I'd love to talk about that a little bit just because this is also a huge turning point in the trilogy for us seeing the cracks in the Jedi Order and us seeing the seeds of the downfall of the Jedi Order at the hands of Darth Vader and what will eventually lead to you know, everything 
snowballing through the original trilogy and then the sequel trilogy because there are clearly multiple cracks in this institution that exists uh, you know, in that Jedi temple in Coruscant and throughout the galaxy. So we've talked about how the Jedi are warriors. They're also a religion. So they hold a very different power than that of the Senate, but they are in some ways beholden to the Senate. And the relationships between the Jedi and the Senate are touched upon in this. And then I think later in other Star Wars media, whether that is a corrupt relationship or whether that's a beneficial relationship is always under scrutiny and under question. But the you know interesting parallel in real world history and literature and in some ways mythology is of course knighthood is chivalry. Of course, the Jedi have this Eastern influence that is part of the philosophy that's, that's hugely uh, expand, expanded upon in the original trilogy. But if we look at the major conflict that Anakin specifically is facing, he's already been through some intense scrutiny by the Jedi Council in The Phantom Menace because as a child he has emotions and fears for bad things happening to his loved ones that has been positioned as a bad thing and as something that leads to the dark side and then in this movie he is facing this terrible inner conflict of the fact that he is falling in love with a senator that while love while being a loving and compassionate person is not discouraged by the jedi romantic love certainly is and then he also has such a strong and passionate devotion to his mother, his only living family member, that her death sends him into a murderous rage where he absolutely touches the dark side and begins to slaughter innocent people. So I want to think about that in the context of specifically medieval European knighthood, which is often invoked in the you know, calling of Jedi knights, because in medieval knighthood... It's, it's not knight? Knigget. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's the French you're pronunciation. Making, you're making such a good point. I apologize. <laughs> Keep going. No, it's good. Um, but, but so at least in a literary uh, context, and a lot of this, because the concepts of chivalry and knighthood are so are so literary, it's hard to tell what is historical and what is a, um, and, and what was actually precipitated by the romances and the literature that were written about knighthood. It's all very wibbly wobbly. And I talk about knighthood in a lot of our episodes, so there's a lot more to it than what I'm going to discuss right now. But a huge facet of it is what eventually becomes framed as courtly love. Uh, the concept of chivalry is this marriage of martial prowess, being really good in battle and being able to fight really well, and then also this knightly courtesy, having good manners, having good hygiene, being polite, being kind to women, being sacrificing and deferential, especially to women and people who are less fortunate than you, uh, not going out and sexually assaulting women, for one. But then courtly love erupts out of this as a sense that the love of women and romantic love is a motivator for knights to go on to greater and greater deeds of martial prowess and to become more and more um, established and respected men. 
So the relationships between romantic love, friendship on the battlefield, and martial prowess are inextricably tied. And some of this certainly has organic origins, right? Because, you know, guys who are out on the battlefield are probably going to want some comfort. But then a lot of this is precipitated by the need to control this military force that you have. If you have a bunch of men on horseback who can fight really well and can take whatever they want, you need some way of stopping them from taking whatever they want when that leads to the destruction of innocent people or you know, the, the ravaging of women. So there were conscious efforts on the part of institutions to, to say like, hey, you're supposed to be really good to women and if you love a woman or you profess your love for a woman or you give them your favor, they give you your favor in a tournament and you create this sort of game of romance with them uh, that is not necessarily consummated, then you're gonna become a better and better knight. So there's this interesting tension then with what we see in the Jedi who are so discouraging of romantic relationships or even the hint of romantic relationships that it turns Anakin inward and sends him more down the path of the dark side because he is supposed to banish this part of him that seems so natural. He's supposed to banish this part of him that loves Padme, and he's supposed to banish this part of him that has uh, attachments to his mother and wants to avenge her. And that just makes things so, so much worse for him. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I, it's almost like people come up with impossible moral codes and standards that people are supposed to live by and that when they fail to live by them are judged by those who wrote those standards, even when maybe they themselves are not so good at living up to them. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned chivalry. If I can just like flesh some of that out a yeah, little please. bit too. What Laurel is talking about is a very real phenomenon. Medieval knights especially in the transition out of the early medieval into the high medieval, which is, this is the high Republic. So a little parallel there, just a historical coincidence, the high medieval era, um, you had all of this trained warrior landowning nobility that did nothing but go around and practice warfare, mounted warfare as knights. And it was a time of relative peace and prosperity. So there wasn't anyone for them to really fight a lot of the times. So what did these warriors do? They literally went out and started killing pe peasant men and raping women and killing clergy. And this was a real issue. And the kings, who uh, technically the knights owed allegiance to, but like the king didn't have the knights. You know, the knights, they were the knights. So they, they didn't necessarily need to listen to kings. And there were several attempts to curtail and rein in this knightly behavior. And the thing that worked was creating the... Arthurian romances that became this sort of mythic example of what knights should look like. And though medieval society will always be a society where, you know, there's challenges to the power of the king, the power of the church, and the power of the nobility, they're constantly going to be ebbing and flowing, but it did actually help stop knights from killing peasants, peasant men, raping their women, and then killing the clergy and taking their wealth. So it did actually have a a net positive effect in reining in this horrible behavior from this huge class of people. And so the stories that we tell can become very powerful and they can change behavior. And in this 
the Jedi and where that relates to the Jedi is that there's a sort of narrative of what a Jedi is supposed to be. And for Anakin, it is contrary to everything that he is as a person, which is a person who deeply, deeply loves. He loves individuals. And the Jedi, are you're not allowed to or supposed to have connection to individuals. He also has a deep connection to Obi-Wan Kenobi, even though their mentor relationship in this movie is very dysfunctional. It's fraught, yeah. Obi-Wan is kind of a jerk to him at times. Anakin is a kind of spoiled, arrogant brat to him at other times. And so the whole idea that the Jedi Order are supposed to go out there, live in society, protect society, but not feel connection to others and form attachments to others, whether that's maternal, romantic, whatever, is a really difficult thing to put in practice, is a very difficult thing for people to do. You know, throughout all medieval era, priests were never supposed to marry, but like half the bastards in Europe were, came from priests. They still had sex with women. You know, like they still did it all the time because that's a really hard, celibacy is a really hard, impossible standard for people to live by. And that part of the code is directly responsible for Padme and um, Anakin to hide their love. And if there's one thing that should never be hidden in the world, ever, it's love. Love should always be celebrated. And the fact that they have to hide their romantic love from the world so that they can continue to do their jobs is a big part of the reason of why this is a tragedy that's going to end where we all know with the death of the Jedi and the rise of the Empire. Whoo! Just let these guys love. So I'm very excited for Revenge of the Sith. Me too. I have so much to say about it. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, and I remember that one being my favorite of the prequels. Yeah, it's probably the best of the prequels. So I'll see if that still feels the same. Anything else you want to say about Attack of the Clones? No, this was really fun. I am just, I, I'm in awe of what you brought about American military history because I hadn't thought about that parallel and it's really relevant today. You know, we're talking about this in the wake of the death of Henry Kissinger. We're talking about this in the lead up to a really uh, contentious election year in the United States. So these are questions, questions of democracy and you know the the soul of uh, of a of a nation or a galaxy that that are really present. So I I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. I mean, there's someone running for president who has a good chance of potentially becoming the president, whom the main part of his platform is invoking the insurrection insurrection act so that he can turn the military all against regular citizens. And that's a open plan that's being discussed by one of America's two major political parties. So let's just make sure we're all registered to vote, please. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, we'll use this wall here so that I can deploy the military against my enemies in the country. And that would be, uh, that would be another step closer to Shiv Palpatine, Augustus, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler. Take your historical parallel. Yeah. Um, may the force be with us. May the force be with you. And until next time, be kind. Be kind.